finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bond servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is the word of God. Well, our text begins with John saying, I saw another sign. Or actually, another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. And this actually takes us back to chapter 12, verse 1, where John says, I saw a great sign. And when John saw this great sign in chapter 12, verse 1, what he was getting ready to see was the birth of Christ. Now, John sees another great sign. And what we're going to see is, in this great sign, is Christ summing up all things. And so this section begins in 12.1 with a great sign preparing the way for the birth and the entrance into the world of Jesus Christ who redeemed us. And now as we come to this second section, this second great sign, John is seeing the consummation of the age. God purging the heavens and the earth and bringing his people home. And so with this sign, John receives communication that the final and most intense judgment cycle is about to begin. The seven bowls, certainly the most intense. This is the last series of judgment cycles. They are intense, and this will bring about all of God's purposes. When this one's done, it is done. We should take note that there comes a day when it will be done. That God will sum up all things in Jesus Christ. I don't know when that day is. But we are to live. We are to live for the glory and honor of God who will bring to pass all of these things. And John is in awe. I saw another sign. It is great and it is marvelous. John's in awe. He stands amazed as he prepares to witness the the coming fruition of God's redemptive plan. That which began in the beginning is is about to be summed up. And John is privileged to witness The consummation of all of God's promises and all of God's purposes are going to come to pass. And John is in awe. Oh my goodness. I am standing at the brink of seeing everything that God has promised come to pass.
We talked a lot when we were in the book of Genesis about God's redemptive plan. And there it was always something future. Here John is about to see something that has been talked about for centuries, for millennia come to pass. He's going to see God's judgment. He's going to see that the wrath of God is finished. That is, the wrath of God will reach its goal. Now, wrath is an unpopular subject today. Most people would prefer not to hear about the wrath of God. But as we go through the Bible, we will uncover this topic. It is a topic in Scripture, and we cannot avoid it. I think this is one of the benefits of going through book by book, verse by verse, because when we get to uncomfortable topics, we have to deal with them. But likewise, we just can't harp on it all the time either, because it's not the only thing we see in Scripture. And so I believe we end up with a nice balanced view of grace and wrath and judgment and mercy and and all of these things, all of the, the, the glory of God, the fullness of God. And wrath is unpopular, but it is a reality. Probably the, um, the most contemporary expression of the unpopularity of the wrath of God is in um, the Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, and I've probably expressed this to you before. PCUSA was putting together its new hymnal, right? And um, one of the, the great modern hymns that fairly recent was... Um, um, that was written in Christ alone. It's a modern hymn. And uh, the Gettys, who, who wrote that, that beautiful hymn, one of the lines is, um, the wrath of God was satisfied. In Christ, the wrath of God was satisfied. And PCUSA said, well, we don't really like that idea. And so how about perhaps we could just change the words to the love of God was magnified. Doctrinally true. Scripturally correct. Theologically accurate. The Getty said, oh no, you will not change our song. You can put our song in your hymn book, but you will not alter it in one way because the wrath of God was satisfied in Christ on Calvary needs to be expressed. And throughout the rest of the song, there's plenty of the love of God was was magnified. There's plenty of that language in the song, and Getty simply said, since that language is in the song, this is what God led us to do. But you can see that people are kind of uncomfortable with this idea. We don't want to sing that. And that's just one fairly modern expression of trying to avoid this very challenging subject. But we cannot avoid it completely. It is here. And here in chapter 15, it says that in these vials, in this bowl, the wrath of God is finished. And I just couldn't help to find a, to, to, that, to be reminded of the parallel that what were the last words of Christ when he was on the cross? It is finished. The wrath of God was poured out completely upon Christ. Christ bore the wrath of God. And I want to assure you that if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a believer in Him, that He has borne the wrath of God on your behalf and you will never, ever face His judgment in that regard. Oh, you may have difficulty in life. You may face tribulation. Look at our brothers and sisters in Iraq right now. Being slaughtered. Our brothers and sisters in North Korea and all over the place. 
being killed for the cause of Christ. But they will stand complete, and as we're going to see, the moment that they breathe their last breath, they are victorious in the presence of God Almighty. Why? Because the wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus Christ. So I guess our our question today is, who will bear God's wrath? I think that's an important question. Do you want to do it? You can, and perhaps you will. But Jesus said, I'll bear the wrath of God, and in me it is finished. Done. Complete. It has reached its end. And I have borne it all on your behalf. It seems to me that any clear-minded person would say, well, that sounds like a better deal. And it is a better deal. And so, John begins this scene in heaven with saying, I saw another sign in heaven. It was great and marvelous. I saw seven angels. They had the seven plagues. These are the last. This, This is the last plague series that we're going to see. And in them, we will see God's wrath reach its end. It will be done. And then we will begin to see us advancing towards the new heaven and the new earth. After this, John introduces this, these seven plagues, and then he goes off into another direction. That's not uncommon for John. It's not uncommon for me. I say something and then go off in some other direction and chase some other idea. So John introduces these seven plagues, and then he's not going to get back to them again for till next chapter. But he introduces to them, and now off he goes into another direction. Because he sees something else. He says something I saw a sea. Uh, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and his number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses and of the Lamb. This heavenly scene, in this intervening scene, John sees the Lamb and his victorious church. Those who are awaiting the great and marvelous consummation of God's redemptive plan, waiting for the new heaven and new earth. I want to take note of the participants in this triumph. Because this is a triumphant scene. And we see, first of all, that they are overcomers. They are victorious. The participants who will participate in this song of victory, who will begin singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb, the first thing we learn of them is that they are victorious. They are overcomers. They are conquerors. I believe this includes all those who have given their lives for the sake of the gospel, but certainly not only those who have given their lives for the sake of the gospel, but those who have persevered until the end. Whether they died of natural causes, or whether they gave their lives for Christ, they are the overcomers. They are the victors. They are the ones who conquered What did they overcome? What did they conquer? Of what were they victors? Well, we learn very quickly. They overcame the beast and his image and the number of his name. So we see the beast, they were overcomers or they were victorious over political pressure to reject Christ. And in John's day, that was certainly wrong. 
There was great political pressure to deny Christ and, and just go with the flow. Don't rock the boat. You've got a tired king or a tired emperor who, and a tired governor who will who just as soon would see you dead as he would anything else. He has no care or concern for you, and so get on board, support the system, and go with the flow, and that's just the way it is. These people would not give in to political pressure and deny Christ. These people would not give in to the political beast and try to... Compromise. They overcame the beast. They also overcame his image. This would speak of the religious pressure to reject Christ. Christians in the first century and in the early second century were considered atheists. I know that seems strange. They don't believe in God. They just didn't believe in the Roman pantheon of God. And they believed that there was one God. And, and he was creator of all things. And that they worshipped Jesus Christ. And, and the Romans said, well, you don't really worship our gods. You don't really believe in one God. No, that's it's work. Call them atheists. And you'll recall that there was great pressure. We saw this in chapters 2 and 3, that there was great pressure to compromise the gospel. And of course we saw this back in chapter 13 as well. Great pressure. The false, the, the false prophet would arise and he did great signs and wonders so that even the elect would be, if possible, even the elect would be deceived. Of course that's not possible. And that this false prophet caused the people to worship the first beast, the political beast. Them and he drove them into idolatry. But these are the victors who did not succumb to idolatry. They did not worship false gods. They did not believe that it was false. They maintained the purity of the gospel. Oh, and they overcame his number. This would be economic pressure to reject Christ. And we saw this, of course, in chapters 2 and 3. Because in, the, in those days, in the first century, that if you were going to buy or sell, you pretty much had to be part of a you know, trade guild. And we've talked a lot about this. And in order to be part of a trade guild, um, you had to be part of a trade guild if you wanted to work. So if you were a bricklayer or you were you know, a carpenter or whatever, you had to be part of the trade guild if you wanted a job. And in order to be part of the trade guild, when you would go into the meeting hall, you would take a pinch of incense and sacrifice and just throw it into the fire as a sacrifice to whatever the deity of that particular trade guild was. And of course inside there was probably all sorts of debauchery and drunkenness and all sorts of crazy things going on. But that was your entrance in. And believers said, I'm not going to sacrifice to a false god. And so I'm not part of the trade guild. Now I can't buy a cell, I can't eat or drink, and it's hard to feed my family. What would you do? These victors would not bow to the political pressure. These people would not bow to religious pressure to reject Christ. These people would not bow to economic pressure. We, of course, think of our uh, of, uh, the Sudanese woman who's just come back, who's now in the United States, but she was in prison because she was a Christian. And she gave birth to a child in, in prison. And she was sentenced to death for not being 
a Muslim, and she married a Christian man. And they put her in jail. And said, we're going to take your children. All it takes is to say a simple word, a simple phrase, something along the lines that Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet, and then you're good to go. You can say she doesn't even really need to mean it. She can just say it. I'm not saying that because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And if that means I have to give birth to my child here in prison, and risk losing my children and my husband and even my life, then I will do so because I know that the moment that I lose my life, I will be in the arms of my precious Savior. Jesus said, even though you die, you will live. She believed it. She would not bow to the politics. She would not bow to the economic pressures. She would not bow to the religious pressures. Now, she's been received safely here in the United States, but let me tell you, there are many like her. Have their children taken away from them. But these are the victors that John sees. And they are able to participate in the Lamb's victory because of their enduring faith in the midst of persecution and in the midst of temptation to compromise with the world. Note where they are. They are before a sea of glass mingled with fire. And the first time we saw the sea of glass was in chapter 4, verse 6. And it's really common or very... It's not unusual for John to introduce a subject or to introduce us to an image and then much later in the book come back and explain it in further detail and give us um, a different viewpoint of it. Uh, probably the best example is in chapter 13. John describes a seven-headed beast that comes up out of the sea, right? Remember that gruesome thing? But then in chapter 17, John's going to describe him again, only going to give him great, greater detail and show us this gruesome beast from a whole different angle. Well, in chapter 4, John showed us the sea of glass, and now we get the sea of glass again, probably just a little more fuller, a little different angle, perhaps a different perspective, filling in some of the details. John sees the sea of glass that is mingled with fire. It surrounds the throne of God. And in chapter 4, we talked about how it being uh, describing the holiness of God and God's sovereignty over evil. But this context, the context here seems to broaden our understanding of the sea of glass because of the um, dominant theme of the Exodus. It's hard not to understand this sea of glass as having some referent to the Red Sea or some allusion to the Red Sea through which Israel passed in, in their deliverance. Remember for Hebrews, the sea was a place of chaos, it was a place of turmoil, it was a place of, of evil, it was a place of darkness, it was a place of, I think I said chaos, if I didn't I'm going to say that again. Forgive my redundancy. You'll recall back in chapter 13, what comes up out of the sea? The beast comes out of the sea. It's a place of chaos, but here it is a sea of glass. It has been stilled. The place of evil, pictured with fire, which I believe speaks of judgment. The Lamb, however, has calmed the sea. And he has brought his people through victoriously. And the place of chaos is now stilled. And the place of evil is now calm. And the place where 
darkness reigns, is now subdued. It is a sea of glass. And the people of God who are victorious, who have overcome the beast and his image and his, the number of his name, stand around this place that has been conquered. Just as the Red Sea has been conquered and, the, and God brought his people through the Red Sea victorious and safe. So the people of God, standing in heaven, have brought, been brought through this world, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the, into the eternal home of the beloved Son. The people are victorious and they sing a song. What else would you expect? Just as the people who came through the Red Sea sang a song of victory, so the people of God were standing in the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. What else are you going to do? And they also sing a song of victory. And they sing, the Bible says, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb sang. And we can get in, maybe on Wednesday, we'll discuss the whole theology behind that conjunction. And, but today we won't. You can thank me later. Unless you're interested in theological implications of the conjunction Chi. Most of you aren't. Some of you are. I know who you are. But they begin to sing a song. Having been delivered by the Lamb, the saints rejoice. And so just as the Israelites sang a song of triumph for their great salvation from their enemies, so now the people of God sing in praise of the Lamb who saved them. And even though the beast may have taken their lives, they have come to life and now they stand victoriously with Christ who also overcame. Remember, if you are united with Christ, then you've been joined with Christ. And what did Christ do? Christ rose from the dead. Christ ascended into heaven. Christ is victorious and you are united with Christ. So guess what? That which happens to Christ happens to Christ's people who are united with Him. You also will die and be resurrected and raised again and seated with Him in heavenly places. Paul in the book of Ephesians even talks about that as a current reality. It is such a certainty that you even now are seated with Him in heavenly places. And so while some may have taken, have given their lives to the beast, they have come to life. The beast said we took their lives, but Jesus says, no, I give them life. The beast says I am victorious, but Jesus says, no, I'm victorious. And I'm the one who wins. And Revelation turns everything upside down, doesn't it? One of the first things we learned in the book of Revelation shows us the way things really are. And the way things appear is that the beast, who is like the beast, who's more powerful than the beast, who can obey war with the beast, who can overcome the beast? He seems to be so powerful and he kills the people of God and they die. But the way things really are is who can overcome Christ? And, and who's like our God? And he's the one who gives them life. And they live forevermore. That's the way things really are. The book of Revelation gives us that perspective, the way things really are. And they sing a song, and this song is parallel, has many parallels in the Old Testament. I won't go through all of them. Um, but basically they begin to praise the works of God, and they begin to call God righteous and true. The works of God are righteous and true. Just as the plagues in Egypt were the catalyst that brought about the deliverance of the saints, so also, 
through these various trials and through these various judgments, God will bring about the salvation of his people. I think one of the key themes in the Bible, if I can quote the title of a book that some of you are familiar with because I've mentioned it before and some of you helped me study it. Thank you very much. I know that was difficult. The title of the book is Salvation, God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. That is, that God saves his people through judgment. And God is glorified. Think about it. What was the cross? It was judgment. And God is glorified, and we are saved. So they begin to sing praises to God who's brought them through. They begin to sing of the perfections of God, that you are the king of the nations. You are the almighty. The beast isn't. The beast roars and makes his claims and wields a certain amount of power, but he is not almighty. He may be a temporary king, but he is not the king of kings. And we will praise you, and all the earth will praise you. Some people, I think, have mistakenly taken this to, uh, to support universalism. But really, I think it's just in support of, chapter, of Philippians chapter 2, 8 through 11. There will be a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day will come. Everybody will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. My suggestion is, since that is the case, bow before him now and give your life and give your heart to him now. You are holy. Your righteous acts have been revealed. And we should note the central theme of worship. Because the book of Revelation is about the exaltation of God and the Lamb. I know sometimes we... We are tempted to make it all about trying to figure out what world event matches up with what event in the book of Revelation. I don't think that's really what the book of Revelation is about. It is about God being exalted and the land being glorified. This is why there's so much praise. This is why there's so much worship. This is why there's so much exaltation. This is why there's so much um, proclamation of the great things of God. It's all the way through the book. You can't get rid of it. And because it's there, we have to think or we have to conclude that that's one of its big themes, is that God is exalted. Oh, when we read the book of Revelation, I pray that we would read it to see the Lamb exalted. And then John has seen this scene in heaven, and he's seen the saints standing around, basically around the throne, singing a song of victory. They did not succumb to the beast or to his image or to the number of his name. And the moment they breathe their last breath, they are in the presence of Christ and they sing his praises. And now John says, after these things, so after I saw this, I saw something else. And this is what I saw. I saw the temple of the tabernacle of testimony. Now, this is the one in heaven, and, and as we've been seeing, that there is this temple in heaven. There's this tabernacle in heaven. The one that Moses constructed here on the earth was a copy of the one that was in heaven. We read that in the book of Hebrews, but we see it very clearly in the book of Revelation. Every time we see the, the tabernacle in the book of Revelation, it's a heavenly tabernacle. So John now sees this 
um, heavenly tabernacle. It is the one that, um, I just said that, it's heavenly. Um, it is called the tabernacle of testimony. This was one of the names that we used, was used of that sacred tent that um, went with the Israelites. They came across the Red Sea. They sang the song of Moses. And as they got to Mount Sinai and God gave them a law, God also gave them, now this is how you're going to worship and you're going to build a tent. And the place where they worshipped God was just a tent. It was collapsible, foldable, portable because they were going to have a journey. It, it wasn't the, the, the permanent one that Solomon built. It was a temporary one. And one of the things that was in this tabernacle, of course you know there was the holy place and the holy of holies, and inside the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy, the most holy piece of furniture, which the Ark of Testimony was just a big box. I know that's maybe not the most flowery way to speak of it, but it was a box. And inside the box they put a number of different things. And one of the things they put was the testimony of God. That is the law of God. God's word. You will have no other gods before me. I'm the, I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You'll have no other gods before me. You'll not make a graven image. You won't covet. You won't steal. You'll honor your father and mother. You'll keep my day holy. These types of things. And John sees the tabernacle of testimony. This tabernacle of testimony in, Egypt, in, in the wilderness was the place where God met with his people. It, was, it signified that God is with his people. You, you'll remember where it is located. It is located right in the middle of the people. All the people camped around it. God is in the midst of his people. It's no mistake for that. So God, John now sees this tabernacle. reminds us of the presence of God and then he sees seven angels coming out of it they have the seven bowls of wrath you'll notice that they are dressed in priestly garb they come out of the tabernacle and they have the seven bowls of wrath we'll learn about more of them next week and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels was finished I think it's interesting that it says that nobody was able to enter this tabernacle until the wrath of God was finished do you recall when Moses finished setting up the tabernacle in the wilderness and he dedicated it to the Lord guess what Smoke filled the temple, and nobody was able to enter. And you remember when Solomon built his temple and dedicated it? The smoke filled the temple, and nobody was able to enter. The priest fell down. I've always thought that would be a cool thing one of these days to show up and not be able to enter our church building because the glory of God was so much we had to move down the parking lot. Wouldn't that be cool? Why are you meeting out here? You go in there, right? Boom! <laughs> One day I'll see that. Maybe when I get rid of my retractable roof. <laughs> but God's glorious presence so that none may enter it. And the entire tabernacle is filled with smoke. This is not unusual. 
because God always veils himself. You'll recall God says, nobody can look on me and live. In other words, and the idea there is nobody can look on me in the, in the fullness of my glory. Because we know some people saw glimpses of God. Moses saw the passing glory of God. And we, you know, we see a variety of places where, where people actually caught a glimpse of God. But nobody can see God in the fullness of his glory. God is always veiled. And oftentimes he veils himself with smoke. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6. And, you know, uh, in the year that... Uh, that the king died. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw the Lord. Smoke filled the building. He did not see him in the fullness of his glory. Even after that, Isaiah said, Well, I'm a dead man. Here we see God's sovereign holiness on display. Sinful creatures may not approach him until every hint of sin. Every trace of sin has been removed. And we should note that man cannot remove the stain of sin. Man may try, and this is important for us to keep in perspective, that as we enter election season, and oh, by the way, we have voter guides in the back. So pick those up. That's not part of the message. <laughs> But regardless of who we vote for, no matter who we bring in, they will not be able to remove the stain of sin. They may make things a little bit better for a while, but you need to understand, they cannot remove the stain of sin that's on our culture. They may prolong the effects of sin for a while, but it is only God who can purge every hint and stain of sin, and He will do so. And then we will see God's voice from the temple. We see this actually in chapter 16, verse 1. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so God has now prepared himself to bring about the completion or the terminus of his wrath. I find it very interesting that after chapter 16 there will be no more mention of a temple And you know why. Because there will be no need for a temple in the new heavens and the new earth because God and Christ will be there. And also, there will be no veiling of God in the new heavens and the new earth, right? Chapter 22, what is one of the promises that are given to those who who endure to the end? And they will see His face. Isn't that the most amazing thing? I know I keep wanting to save that till the end because I think it's so good. We've got to keep bringing it up all the way through the Bible. You cannot see my face and live. You cannot see my face and live. You cannot see my face and live. And it's always veiled. It's always hidden. It's always behind a curtain. It's always hidden to some degree. And then in the end, in the new heaven, in the new earth, there is no temple because God is present with us. And we will see His face. That's the book of Revelation. So I'll conclude with this. We are to be people of worship. That includes singing. For God alone is worthy. And we sing about His perfection. We sing about His deeds. We sing about His ways. We sing doctrine. Our words need to reflect theology for a lot of reasons because it's appropriate 
but also it teaches us good doctrine. Help us to remember good doctrine. Sometimes we remember things better in song. We need to remember this. All nations will bow before the Lord. All nations. Every tongue, every tribe, every people, every race, every person will bow before the Lord Almighty. In the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. We need to keep this in mind as we go out from here that with the help of God, the people of God will be victorious over all threats. So the temptation that comes your way this afternoon, God will empower and enable you to overcome that and to live gloriously before Him. The issue that you are dealing with right now, the heavy burden that you are bearing right now, once you know, you will be victorious. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I don't want to make light of any trials or difficulties. I'm just saying you can overcome. I'm saying with God's help. And God has given you His people here at this church, and we would love to walk alongside you. And if the day ever comes where there is political, economic, and spiritual pressure to deny Christ, with God's help, you will stand in Him, uncompromising, faithful to the end. And even if it costs your life, I want you to know that the moment that the life goes out from you here on this earth and your body falls to the ground, you are alive and well and singing the song of Moses and singing the song of the Lamb, rejoicing in the great things that God has done. So let's stand and let's pray and be thankful for the great things that God has done.